Acts chapter 17, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 926. Let's hear the word of the Lord, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we're indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would be able to receive it now with joy in the Holy Spirit, and that upon receiving it, our hearts would be transformed, our minds would be renewed, our wills would be compelled that we may live to your honor and your glory in whatever we do. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So today is part two of last Sunday's message. We ran out of time. I had more ways that I wanted to apply Acts 17. And that means today's message will be lighter on explaining the text and heavier on applying the text. If you missed last Sunday, that that message is online. Today's primary goal is to answer this question, how else might Acts 17 equip you and me as Christ's disciples? Last time we drew further confidence from the fact that the gospel is not only an intellectually respectable message, it's the power of God for salvation. Dionysius, Damaris, and others are persuaded that Christianity is true, Jesus is risen. In a world teeming with idols and competing worldviews, the gospel saves. Moreover, the gospel still calls us to repent from our idolatry. Not just the world, but especially us in the church. We must reorient our lives around the true God. We cultivate a heart that's jealous for God's glory. We renew our minds to discern idols and renounce them to have more of God in Christ. And why do we do this? Because He is the universal Creator and Lord of all. And we exist to seek Him and enjoy worshiping Him as He really is. That was last week. What else does Acts 17 mean for us? It also means we must align our lives with God's mission to all peoples. We must align our lives with God's mission to all peoples. When reading Scripture, one of the most important questions you can ask is this, what time is it? What time is it? What era in God's story are we living But be careful, answering that question may transform your life. Look at verses 30 and 31 again. They highlight what time it is. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man... Whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I explained some of this last week, but for, for, for centuries, Israel benefited from God's special revelation. God didn't give this to all nations. He chose Israel, and there was a time when he let the nations walk in their ignorance. But Paul presents that situation as a thing of the past. The times of ignorance God overlooked, he says, but now, but now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's it's not that the nations all of a sudden stop walking in ignorance but that God now has a mission not to leave them in their ignorance. So rather than dealing primarily with Israel, like we see in the Old Testament, and maybe a handful of Gentiles here and there, no, God has now commissioned the church to take His special revelation 
to all. We have a mission to command all peoples everywhere to repent and to rest their guilty, weary selves in the forgiveness God offers in Christ. And that mission, what we're seeing here, started with Jesus' resurrection and it finishes with Jesus' return. That's what time it is. We live between His resurrection and His return. And until His return, our risen Lord says, command all peoples everywhere to repent. I fear that many Christians look to God's Word to find therapeutic comfort for a life they would have lived anyway without Jesus. They like the gospel because it pacifies their guilty conscience. But when it comes to commanding the world to repent, that's something we check out of. Beloved, we cannot live there. We can't live there because King Jesus is too glorious and forgiveness is too sweet to keep silent. And His return is too dreadful to leave people in their ignorance. You see, life isn't so much about how God fits into our plans It's not so much about how God fits into our daily routine. It's about adjusting our plans and our lives to fit the story of God's mission and what He is doing in the world. And God is on a mission to save people from all nations. So how are you conforming your life to that mission? Based on a number of factors and abilities and giftings, it's going to look different for each of us. But the question is still one that everybody can ask. How is he right now conforming you to participate in his mission to reach all peoples? Would your, would your co-workers and clients know you to be a Christian? Would they say, man, he hates it when God's name is belittled? Would they say, I don't know this Jesus she talks about, but the way she talks about him makes me want to know him. What time is it, beloved? It's, it's time to command all peoples everywhere to repent. How are you aligning your life with that mission? I know mine needs further alignment. One morning this week I was... Praying, and I asked the Lord each morning, allow me to share the gospel with one person today. Just one. Let me share the gospel with them. And I was sitting up here, right in the middle of some work, and he sends me someone knocking on the door. I was rather impatient with the interruption. I was in the middle of something. It wasn't until halfway through the conversation that the Lord rebuked me with this question. What time is it, Brett? 
In an instant, it changed everything about that conversation and my heart as well in that conversation. And we went on to discuss how the Lord binds up those who've been torn apart. He had tattoos across his knuckles torn apart. Next, as we call the nations to repentance, imitate Paul's God-centered analysis, his unbiased engagement, and his worldview evangelism. Imitate Paul's God-centered analysis, his unbiased engagement, and his worldview evangelism. Not everyone must be a pioneering church planter like Paul, but I am saying there are patterns to Paul's uh, life uh, that we ought to imitate. Paul says elsewhere, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Paul involves himself in God-centered analysis. Verse 16, it says, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw, he's taking notice, that the city was full of idols. You know, most people who entered Athens were quite impressed with the city. They were enthralled by the the architecture. Well, Paul sees right through the facade, though, and it's an idolatry swamp. In verse 23, he, he observes the objects of their worship. He knows them well enough to quote from an inscription on the rock. And then he shows how far they fall short of knowing the true God. In verse 28, he's familiar with their own poets. But he uses those poets to acknowledge the truth about humanity they get right and to expose the worship they get so wrong. He looks at their culture through through God-centered lenses. And says, that's good, that's bad. That's right, and that's wrong. That's true, that's false. That's beautiful, that's corrupt. And we need the same God-centered lenses. We we need to train our minds to make God-centered critiques of ideas and beliefs and values that don't align with God's truth, with God's justice, with God's character. We can't just passively sit back and let the culture entertain us and tell us how we must think. We must be alert to its deception. What what is this commercial teaching me to value? Why does the media keep pushing that headline while ignoring these major events? Why do Facebook and Google sift content so you see only what you prefer to see and does this isolate you into a little bubble that precipitates self-worship? We need to be asking these kinds of questions as we're interacting with our culture. We also see in Paul's witness unbiased engagement. He doesn't play favorites. 
Uh, note the various people he interacts with, Jews and Greeks in the synagogue. He, he goes out into the marketplace and he talks with, with anyone who happens to be there. Uh, he converses with the Stoics and the Epicureans, the great philosophers of his day. Men and women alike, we see by the end of this passage. Ethnicity, economic status, social status, gender, education level, it doesn't matter. They all need Christ and Paul offers them Christ. And likewise, we too must not show favorites. Now, in terms of strategy, it may help to think through ways to reach a particular people, but never can our strategy turn into favoring that people or that class over others. Or favoring only those people who look, dress, smell, and talk and do things like us. We can't fall into the, into the error of building a church around a particular ethnicity or class. Or doing things here that would exclude a particular ethnicity or class. The gospel is for all peoples without distinction. When Paul interacts with these people, though, what's his approach? It's not difficult to observe differences. Just, just read his speeches throughout Acts. You know, someone that you can go home and compare his, his speech in Acts 13 to the Jews. And then, go, and then read this one, his speech to the Areopagus in Acts 17. And compare them. Now, both show relentless faithfulness to Scripture and to preaching Christ. And yet, there are also differences. It's, it's not this prepackaged message every time. Here's four spiritual laws. Here's the Romans road. Here's the way of the master, whatever. It's not prepackaged. He shows sensitivity to what people know and don't know in the categories they accept or deny. He practices what we might call worldview evangelism. A worldview is your all-encompassing perspective on everything that matters. Right? Where do we come from? What shapes morality? Is there morality? If there is, how do we know it? What's possible and not possible? It's the lens through which we see everything. And all I mean to say here is that Paul is attentive to the worldview of his listeners. Right? He knows where they're coming from. And, and that serves his ability to communicate the truth more clearly and be sure that they're actually getting what he's saying. You know, for the Jews, you know, who, who read Scripture, they knew monotheism, God is, there is only one God, and sin, and they knew about curses, and they knew about God's promises. But most were completely blind to a Messiah who would suffer, die, and rise again when they read the Scriptures. That, their worldview didn't allow it. And, but what Paul does... What, is, what do we see him doing in verses 2 and 3 of Acts 17? He takes the Scriptures, right? He opens them, and then he builds into their worldview from the Scriptures that the Messiah would suffer, die, and rise again. And then he says, that Messiah's name is Jesus. Right? So patiently, he lays this groundwork before he even gets to the name Jesus. He does the same with the Areopagus, except they don't know the Scriptures and their worldviews very much compete with Scripture. 
They weren't blank hard drives onto which he might download Christianity. No, their, their hard drives already had corrupt files that would, that would conflict with Christianity and, and prevent them from, from, from receiving the gospel files accurately. Francis Schaeffer once said, We must understand that there's no word so meaningless as the word God until it is defined. For Paul, to walk into Athens and slap a John 3.16 bumper sticker on everything, while their concept of God and love and world are so out of step with the biblical meaning would be just plain lazy, confusing, and unloving. No, what does he do first? He lays groundwork upon which he can then preach Christ. He starts further back with God and who he is and what he's like. Right? If you don't know God truly, you're not going to get the gospel rightly. You're not even going to hear it rightly. And then he pulls from their own poets, he interacts with their worldview and They were right to see something of God's nature revealed in humanity, but they were dead wrong to turn him into an idol of their own making. And so while he's setting forth the biblical worldview, he's also dismantling and challenging their worldview and showing its inconsistencies and exposing, ultimately, their accountability before God. And Francis Schaeffer called this taking the roof off someone's house. Right? People construct worldviews they, to go in and they, and they hide from reality in their worldview. They go into them like a house. But when the roof is off, he says, each man must stand naked and wounded before the truth of what is. Our brother Max uh, wrote a thesis on, on Francis Schaeffer, and he adds this. When an individual comes face to face with the fact that their worldview is illogical and cannot adequately answer major objections of existence, morals, and how they come to know anything at all, that's when Christians are able to lovingly and confidently demonstrate that God revealed Himself in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and in the Bible. Thank you, Max. I don't want to make this more complicated than what it is. The main point is that we're dealing with people, not projects. We're dealing with people, not baptism statistics. And loving them well means working hard to know them and to know how they think and to know what framework they're hearing you from and then building a foundation on which Christ is rightly understood and offered. The best way that you can do this is by asking questions and listening. Ask lots of questions. Press people's worldview to their logical conclusions and then ask more questions. And then back it up a bit and show how the biblical worldview is most consistent with reality and the only one that offers true hope in the gospel. 
You have a few examples here in the book of Acts, but maybe an example would, another example would help. Suppose you work with an LGBT advocate. And let's assume your relationship is one where neither of you mind sharing your views. She's quite adamant that Christians have got sexuality wrong and they're just imposing external constraints. Her view differs from others in the LGBT community. It's not so much the create your own reality, I can do what I want view. It's it's actually a seek your own destiny view. I was born this way. I must be true to myself. Now, the worst way to approach this is to impose on her a worldview that she doesn't actually hold. Christians are doing this all the time. It's awful. We end up slandering people. We end up putting words in her mouth, right? Not too much better are superficial remarks like... You fight so often for various political freedoms, but I just want to say that true freedom comes in Christ. Well, that might be true, but it's conflating categories and not really meeting her at the most fundamental level. Far better is to follow Paul's approach. Address her own worldview and even be willing to grant where that worldview might get some things right. Back it up. Same situation. Maybe your conversation can go like this. You know, you're always telling me that you must be true to yourself. It would be morally wrong for you to live out of sync with your human identity. You couldn't be more right. Christianity actually affirms the same truth. The real question is how do you know your human identity? Is it just subjective? A matter of your own inclination? your own feelings? Or could it be that you've gotten your identity all wrong? Is there something objective, something outside of us that tells us what we are and whose we are and why we are? You see, the culture around you has told you this, you are your sexuality. The whole of your self-worth is found in fulfilling your sexual desires. But when that goes south, when relationships fail, then what? You've got nothing left to live for. And you don't know who you are. On the other hand, Scripture sets our identity in someone outside of us who never changes and who is always faithful and who, is, who knows us in the most intimate way. In fact, this God has stamped His identity in you, in us. Whether male or female, you're His image bearer and He determines your destiny. And from there, it's not too much farther from conversations about the image of God. 
and how sin warps God's image and, and what Christ has done to give us a new identity in Him. God-centered analysis, unbiased engagement, worldview evangelism. Know the people you're talking to. Hear them. Understand them before we just start launching gospel grenades at them. Speaking of worldview, what are some ways Acts 17 shapes our worldview? One way is with resurrection truth. Now, if there's, if there's one thing we've noticed in Acts, it's the centrality of Christ's bodily resurrection. But also notice that Christ's resurrection guarantees a future bodily resurrection of all people. Christ will judge the world in righteousness, verse 31 says. Everyone will be raised for judgment. How might a future bodily resurrection shape your worldview? Well, some religions break the universe into spirit and matter, right? Spirit is good, matter is evil. But a future bodily resurrection actually says just the opposite. Resurrection means that your body is good. That God's physical creation is good. Resurrection also teaches us how to view history, right? History isn't this endless cycle that's just going to go on forever. History is actually linear. It's, it's going somewhere, and the risen Jesus is taking it there. He's taking it to the, judge, to the resurrection, the judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. This is good news for Hindus right here. Resurrection also means that humans are accountable. The Lord is going to judge everybody. It also means that physical death is not the end. The death you and I experience in this life is not the end. I've attended funerals where pastors have said things like, He will never be more whole than He is now. I know intentions are good, but that's a lie. That is false. We're not whole until we receive our resurrection bodies. Right? All of creation is groaning for the adoption of sons. And what is that? The redemption of our bodies. That's when we're whole. These are but a few ways that our bodily resurrection should shape our worldview. Next, what about racism? Acts 17 and racism. I want to look at four truths that kill racism in Acts 17. Racism isn't limited to the black-white divide in America, it, it has a much longer history and, and numerous horrible expressions worldwide. I do want to be careful when I use the term racism, though, 
especially since racism is often hijacked by various ideologies to promote racist political agendas. In his book, Love in Hard Places, D.A. Carson offers a helpful starting place. He says, racism means all patterns of exclusion of others grounded in race or ethnicity. I find the latter term, ethnicity, more helpful than race. The Bible never organizes people by skin color, as is so often done in race discussions. Rather, the Bible speaks of ethnoi, ethnic groups, various peoples, tribes, tongues, peoples, nations. And then also, I like to add the element of pride and prejudice. Pride being the making yourself superior to others. Prejudice being the the hostile opinions or feelings based on your perceived superiority. And so when I say racism, I mean all patterns of exclusion of others grounded in ethnic pride and prejudice. Acts 17 equips us with a worldview that ought to rip racism to shreds wherever it exists. To begin, all ethnicities share the same heritage in Adam. Acts 17.26 God made from one man every nation. Read ethnicity there. God made from one man every nation ethnicity of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. That's a sweeping statement. No ethnicity exists as the result of the fall or the result of a curse or the result of random genetic mutations. God made every ethnicity, and he doesn't make mistakes. He also made them from one man, Adam, which means every person of every ethnicity bears the image of God. Here's some homework. Go home and read Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, and then read Genesis 5, verses 1 to 3, and you will see that the image of God passes on from generation to generation since Adam. For all ethnicities. No matter the skin color, hair texture, facial features, geographical location, language, food, likes and dislikes, We're all cousins in Adam. His blood runs in our veins. We're all cut from the same cloth. We're created to image God. To demean or dismiss or stereotype another person because of their skin color not only ignores our common ancestry, it's an assault on God's image, an assault on God's creative work. No ethnicity is more valuable than the other. They're all equally a part of God's good creation. More than that, all ethnicities share the same purpose to know God. 
They have a God-given purpose to know Him. Verse 27 goes on to say, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and, and find Him. Paul fleshes it out some in Romans 1 that God made known His invisible attributes in the things that have been made. Every ethnicity should look at creation and seek after God truly. Now, sadly, by the time you get to Romans 3, we see all ethnicities abandon this purpose. Right? Unity in Adam also means their sin nature hinders the pursuit of God truly. Every ethnicity exchanges God's glory for idols. And that should humble us when we interact with one another, right? Our unity in Adam means nobody can say they're better than the other. Before God, we're all idolaters. All ethnicities share the same idolatry problem. Look again at verse 30. He commands all people everywhere to repent. So, which ethnicities need to repent from their idolatry? Which ethnicities need to repent of their idolatry, including the idolatry of self and the idolatry of one's ethnicity? Which ones? All of them. All people everywhere. Nobody gets a free pass on repentance. All people everywhere must repent. That means reorienting your whole self around Jesus and finding your ultimate identity in Jesus. It's not just European Americans that need to repent, though we do. It's also African Americans and Chinese and Latinos and Koreans and Canadians and Hispanics and Egyptians and Russians and Jamaicans. We must all return to the Lord. He's not far from us. In fact, all ethnicities are being pursued by the same God. They're being pursued by the same God. God gave up His Son for all ethnicities, right? Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to Myself. He's the Lamb who has slain and redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Revelation 5.9. Verse 30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. God commands them, right? God is the one sending His messengers and pursuing and commanding all peoples without distinction, saying, come to Me. Any pattern of exclusion of someone grounded in ethnic pride and prejudice denies these truths in Acts 17 and will be held accountable at the judgment seat of Christ. At the same time, people who embrace the truths of Acts 17 can make great strides in the pursuit of unity. Real unity. Familial unity in Christ. The world doesn't have answers to the sin of racism. They don't even have the proper worldview to diagnose the problem. But by God's grace, He hasn't left the church in ignorance. We know the truth, and it's right here. 
We can walk into any room, into any church, into any store, into any school, into any neighborhood, into any country, into any city, and say about any person in any one of those locations, descended from Adam, like me. Image bearer, created to know God, just like me. A guilty idolater, just like me. A candidate for God's grace, just like me. And when that's the attitude of our heart, racism will die. God's truth will sever the roots of ethnic pride and prejudice and make the church to better reflect the community will eventually be in the final kingdom. One final way Acts 17 might shape our worldview. Refugees. God's movement of people keeps us mindful of our missionary opportunity with refugees. The Bible speaks of God ordaining government to promote good and restrain evil. And when it comes to refugees, evaluating how a government should act is critical. And without minimizing the importance of those conversations that need to happen, all I want to do here is point out one truth from Acts 17 that should also, that should also play a significant role in shaping our response to refugees. And I'm talking to us as a church, as Christians. It's in verse 26. God determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. God is sovereign over the movement of peoples so that they might find Him. 11,741 people groups worldwide. Over 7,000 are unreached, which means there's less than 2% an evangelical witness. 3,178 remain unengaged, which is worse than being unreached. Because nobody is looking for you. No Christians, no active missionary engagement. Now, mostly these unengaged live in North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, and there are obvious challenges to reaching them. But here's the remarkable opportunity we have. God has brought many of these unengaged people groups here and to other major cities in the world where they can access the gospel. Look at this video for a minute. This is the last 16 years or so. The dots that you see are refugees and where they're going worldwide into various cities around the world as they're fleeing from country to country. 
God is sovereign over the movement of these peoples. The circumstances they're leaving are unspeakably horrible. Over the last three years, we've seen many refugees settle in Fort Worth from Myanmar, Iraq, Congo, Somalia, and Syria. God has brought the nations to our doorsteps. The question is, what will we do with this opportunity? Will we sit in fear over what this could mean for our country? Will we spend all our time sitting at home, typing ferociously on Facebook about what more the government should do and should not do? Or will we see this as God's doing as part of His plan to help many of these very unengaged peoples come to know Christ? That needs to be a question for the Christian. That the American government and the American people are not going to be worried about. That's the question we need to be worried about. I think our walks through Acts 17 has equipped us all the more to share Christ with them. Not only do these truths kill racism, they compel us to minister to all ethnicities without distinction, right? Unbiased engagement. And then we've also learned how to talk with people with different world views to help them know and understand the gospel that frees them from idolatry. So let's pray that God would give us opportunities to make His gospel known. Not only in, when we send people out, but when we're doing it here in Fort Worth. What's next? Lord's Supper? Prayer? Lord's Supper. Dale, you got it. <laughs>